Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern-day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. Community is the people who I can go to for support, support and a sense of togetherness. It's also a sense of love. Because I think a lot of people talk about physical community, like, you know, I live in this space and this is my community. But if you saw someone outside getting beaten up, you wouldn't even help them. That's not community. Community is a group of people who live for each other and would fight for each other. Claire Yuri is a longtime friend of Protein, having hosted events in our studios for her sustainable fashion brand Hangar, which she has recently left to start up Cogdis, a creative ethics consultancy focusing on manifesting utopia. Also known as the High Priestess, you can find her giving tarot readings, which she did for me after this interview, and it was truly enlightening. This was recorded over lockdown, so apologies for the audio quality. Claire, great to have you on the show. Um, excited to you know, hear your story. Um, uh, unfortunately, we can't be you know, face-to-face on this conversation, so hopefully the technology will uh, enable this to run without too much hiccups. Um, so why don't we start with a, just a quick introduction uh, in terms of what you've been up to, you know, what you might be known for. Um, yeah, why don't we start there? Yes, okay. Well, yeah, lovely to speak to you too, Well. And, okay, an introduction. I suppose people would know me from my design background. I had been running a label called Hanger for the past seven years. And earlier, yeah, oh my God, earlier this year, seems like an actual lifetime ago, I was on Netflix's Next in Fashion, the only series. Um, And, yeah, that's what I've been doing, actually, mostly. So that's what most people know me for. But more recently, I suppose, in the kind of more spiritual space because I'm also now a tarot reader. So I kind of occupy both of those groups. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, why don't we start with your, the hangar story uh, yes. in terms of the, the inception. Uh, and yeah, I will, I'm always curious to really understand not where ideas come from because, you know, the ideas just appear um, mm. but really how that idea sort of translated into Hangar. Um, it'll be great to hear, mm. hear a bit more about that. Okay, so Hangar. Basically, I actually, you know, I was one of those kids that was like, I'm going to be a fashion designer or, uh, or um, you know, a jockey, but wait, I was wait, not. For, for, from what age was that um, I'm going to be a fashion designer? Well, like you know, since I knew how to talk really young, because <laughs> I love I love horses, but I also love clothes in equal measure, and obviously clothes are you know much more accessible for someone in my economic situation. So I yeah, that was kind of always the aim, um, and I think you know like as we're taught, if you're into fashion, you're either you're probably everyone wants to be a designer, right? because nobody tells you about all of the tens of thousands of other jobs that you could be doing in fashion. 
So everyone's like, yes, I want to be a designer. So, I mean, in a really simplistic way, I just went through and did that. Um, And, you know, like did all the normal stuff, learned how to build it. Like I didn't, I'm not really a massive person to, um, I don't know, it's not like I did a course on starting a business. I did some small courses and got lots of advice. But how I built Hangar is I just started because I didn't have, anything else to do I wanted actually before I thought about getting a job but I couldn't get a job as a designer because you need you know you need three years of experience that I couldn't afford to get because I I couldn't afford to work for free sure so So wait kind of like what what age were you then that was just when I left uni I did like a year of styling machining and just like straight partying and then in that in that order (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but to be honest, the partying was precedent and partying was consistent every single day. Um, also, because uh, where I went to, I think a lot of fashion unis, especially in London, it's not, you don't do as much partying as like other courses because it's really consuming. So I didn't really get to do that when I was in uni. So as soon as I left, I was like, all I'm doing is partying and I'm going to do jobs where I can come hungover and basically be the DJ. And you know one's going to be mad at me. <laughs> so, so that's what I did, and it was really, really fun. Um, so wait, what, 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 what year are we in then, in terms of that, that party scene? That was in 2012, yeah. Okay. Yes. So where were you going out? Dalston, yeah. It was, I lived in Hackney Central, our place was a party. It was obviously a dump but um it was so fun and yeah it was you know the like basically the end of the great years where there was a party every single night and it was really fun and I met a lot of the friends that I still have now um and I moved yeah I moved from south up to east and it was yeah it was great and um, there was a lot of vitality in London then I have to say and I sound like I, I'm so young I sound like a dinosaur when I say that but um Oh yeah, it was so nice. But it was great, you know. It was really fun. And I was, had a good time. Did that um, fun? Shall we? Let's let, let's just encapsulate it in that in that single word for now. But you know, was that informative, defining in terms of what you did with Hanger and and subsequently? Oh my god, absolutely! Because everything that I actually ended up doing with Hanger was all based around my community. And the people that I knew and like collaboration and, you know, as everybody says who's in any party scene, it's about the sharing of energy and it's about um, communicating with people, interacting and also just like discussing stuff. Like, you know, it's there's the rare time where those, you know, 3 a.m. cokey chats are actually talking about something exciting there and something that's boundary pushing. Most of the time it's drivel, but, you know. There are like there are amazing interactions and concepts that you come up in with in the party scene, right? And also, this is where I actually created a lot of my chosen family and people that I really, really love and respect. And this is where I met them. So that kind of sense of community that I guess actually I haven't thought about it, but that really was the beginning of that of building that, and that's what I really wanted to amplify. Um, and work with through Hanger and I think that's why as Hanger grew um, I didn't even realize that consciously at the beginning 
and yeah when you build you when you build a label like there's a lot of running into stuff and just doing stuff because people have told you to do it and it takes a moment and there are a few moments in the, the journey with the brand where I actually stopped and looked back and realized what I was doing so I could actually do it well you know you stumble you stumble into a lot of stuff um, when you build stuff yourself, I think, was what I did anyway, especially mm. when it's the first thing that you build. And a couple of interesting points there. And, and just touching quickly on community, and it's it's a word we um, we talk about a lot uh, in terms of mm. you know, our community and you know when we work with clients and how they are trying to build communities. But for, through your eyes, like, how would you define community? Um, oh God, yeah, you know, because community is really spoken about in such um, loose and, yeah, just, you know, it's used all the time in instances I don't think it's really correct. Like, for me, like, community is the people who I can go to for support. Um, I think mainly support and a sense of t- togetherness. Because especially in the community that I have in my life now, there is there are different threads that unite us, but there's one key thread in that, like, you know, how we operate in the world, what our motivations are. And it's also a sense of love. Because I think a lot of people talk about physical community, like, I, you know, I live in this space and this is my community. But if you saw someone outside getting beaten up, you wouldn't even help them. That's not community. Mm. Like, community is... Um, you know, a group of people who would, who live for each other and would fight for each other. And for me, community is quite tribal. I see that. And have, yeah. I feel that. <laughs> and I agree with that. Uh, and, mm. you know, we talk a lot about, you know, shared values and, and you know, whether that's from your upbringing your background you know it goes way beyond as you you know correctly pointed Mm. out like your physical you know location in terms of Mm. being defined by where you live and and the community that it's more of a neighborhood um Mm. but i completely agree it's it's an overused word we call them dirty words um (laughs) because it's like what does that mean anymore um but important, like vital, uh, and mm. even through the last year, that's been, you know, terrible, um, challenging in so many different ways for so many different people. Yeah, it feels that need for, you know, a common a common ground, a common language, mm-hmm. and just a, you know, a, a safe place. That is 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 increasingly more uh, you know, asked for uh, and and expected. Um, mm. But, you know, coming back then to Hangar in terms of this mm. uh, brand, ultimately, you know, b- mm. business, um, but very mm. much from those roots, you know, where, sort of how did that grow? Like from that initial inception to being a fashion, or wanting to be a fashion designer and then, you know, running your own, own label, yeah. um, you know, how did that story continue and then ultimately, you know, end? So... The whole journey was really um, very organic and I would say quite accidental because I had no idea what I was doing. I had, you know, I had uh, like literally two weeks training with the Prince's Trust and I read a book on how to start a fashion label. (laughs) 
And then I was just like, cool, was let it me helpful, just do it. That, was it helpful, that book? Well, yes and no, because you know, everything to do with fashion is so archaic. It could have been written hundreds of years ago. And it's like, this is the formula, this is what you got to do. And the thing is, it's useful because I didn't know what half of those things meant because it fashion university if you don't study it with business which is like one available course you don't get taught anything about business or how to run a label or how the seasons work or you know stuff that seems really obvious so all of that stuff I had to learn so that stuff was useful but once you learn something like that um actually you are creating everything in line with that archaic structure so then it's to learn something and then to break free from it um, and sometimes you don't even realize you need to break free, right? Mm. So these things can be helpful, but also a hindrance at the same time. And that's why a lot of the time I'm just like, look, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> because that's also just how I like to do, how I like to learn mm-hmm. is by doing. There's an there's an amount of stuff that I can read, but I want to try it for myself. So I kind of just like started. I started out of my basement and shared a little studio with my friend and then just started doing you know small collections building it myself like working freelance jobs putting that money into it um shooting with you know my friends who are photographers models videographers like being like hello everyone please do me a favor don't you love me and everyone being like yeah so to be honest it's um you know everything was done on a shoestring but it was really fun and then I just did some competitions and like learn about international sales and all of that stuff. But all of that is in the same vein as what I was saying before. It's very structured and um, it wasn't very, um, you know, innovative, that structure or way of operating business. It felt very old and, you know, trudgy. Like it was kind of always a, always a bit of a struggle. So the first three years when I was doing business were relatively low key and then I won I was a joint winner of this ASOS Fashion Discovery Award in 2016, which was, you know, one of the most intense learning curves of my life because I got 50 grand, which disappeared in, you know, the blink of an actual eye because fashion, you know, having a fashion brand is just like throwing money into a bin that's on fire. So it's like, it was, it was really fun. It was a really good lesson to like learn how to scale up. And it taught me a lot of the problems of working at scale, which then became very apparent to me. And everything about working with big manufacturers from locally to overseas and, you know, different types of buyers. And then once I actually really started working with a lot of different types of buyers, I was like, you're all boring little sheep. I don't even know why you're you're buyers. Like you say you're exciting, but you all want to buy the same thing. So... You know, it kind of like that experience enlightened me to a lot about the industry, which I really appreciated. And I went through a period where I had this big stage of growth. I had loads of accounts in like international stores and I'd done some collabs with people, which were really fun. But then after this, my dad actually, he died in 2018. And it was earlier that year that I was like, why am I doing this? Like I've I thought that I would really enjoy this, but I'm, there's not one ounce of enjoyment in my body right now. Then I should feel, I should feel like I'm enjoying it because there were some things that I could do with the brand that I consistently loved, which was everything that was creative. And we always created films to go with the launches. Like, you know, we 
were so fortunate to work with like amazing people and meet amazing people to work with that are like my close friends now. At the end of the day, we had to sell clothes and oh my God, that process, having to like, you know, do this whole song and dance with buyers and agents and all of these people that kind of like made sure that you knew where you were in the order of things, right? And it's not really my nature to be subordinate or stay in that position of, oh my God, please love me. Because if you're not into it, you're not into it. And I also don't really care. I don't want to beg you if, you're, if you don't like it. Um, and yeah, I think that's why I had, there was a time where I was really stressed out. And then I just had like a light bulb moment, like, why am I even doing this shit? I don't even have to do that. I don't have to do another collection. I don't even have to do it at that time. I, I could do whatever I want. It's literally my brand. I built it. If I want to change what it eats, if I want to put it in a different location, if I want to kill the damn thing, I'll do whatever I want. It's mine. And so after I had that revelation, I was like, well, damn, I can, yeah, let's change it. So I just changed everything, kind of bit by bit, um, by... Yeah, the first thing was not doing two collections a year because it's a waste. Every single time I'd put a collection out and I'd be like, yeah, it's sick. Um, and then it would be old in like a month. And I'm like, holy hell, I just put a lot of effort into that. And also the garments are great. It's not old in a month. That's just nonsense. I don't, everyone's asking me like, buyers emailing me, do you have, are you doing like pre-resort this and that? And I'm like, no, hon. I have a main collection that's bomb. Go and buy that. Why do you want new all the time? It's irritating. And also, like, you're not my master. I'll make whatever I want to make. If you want to buy it, you'll buy it. And what I learned, actually, is when I changed to that way of working, um, people still bought it. You know, the less I wanted to sell to them, like, I'd email them back and be like, look, I'm not doing any. I'm not working with you guys anymore. I'm not working with any of your type of stores. I'm not making this kind of collection. I'm not doing that. I'm only doing this, and I'm going to sell it at this time for this price. Um, and then when I started doing that, people were like, oh, my God, I really want it. <laughs> and I was just like, you little shit. <laughs> it was so annoying. But also, sure, you can have what I think it's, you know, once you step into your own power as a person and accept what you want, and that resonates with everything that you put out, people believe in it because you believe in it right mm. so changing that was really fabulous so what was that moment um that inflection point was there a was there a trigger for it yes it was really just feeling exasperated there was a lot of um there are a couple years i would say 2017 to 18 where i was so stressed from like production issues, money issues, because I had money coming in, but also money flying out like there's no tomorrow. And there was all of these things which kind of like collectively built up a state of anxiety that I just couldn't live with anymore. And, you know, everybody that knows me knows that I'm really the opposite of an anxious person. Like I'm, you know, it is in my being to be relaxed. And having that you know, you know that feeling of anxiety where it's a literal vibration, like you feel like you are shaking. That 
was it just snapped the twig for me. And I was like, I am not taking this anymore. <laughs> I'm not doing it. And that's why my brain, you know, my actual mind spoke to me and was like, Claire, why are you even doing that? You don't need to do that. And then my, you know, my conscious brain was like, oh, shit, yeah, you're right. I don't even know why, was why I've been thinking this way the whole time. So it's like, you know, sometimes you really need to be pushed to the bottom to spring up. And it's like, you know, if everything is in the middle, you don't have those real transformative moments. The most polarizing positions are the ones which allow you to energetically move to the other side of the scale. So I really needed to like hit that this is how bad it really can be and how that feels in your body to for me to know that this is not what I'm going to do anymore. Because you need something that's going to boot you right up the arse and give you the impetus to change, um, which is not someone just saying, oh, well, you know, it could be better if you do it this way. Sometimes you need to feel literally the flames of the fire to be like, oh, damn, I've got to do something different. So that would be your words of advice to any recent fashion graduate looking to embark on a their own label. You've got to get you've got to get stuck in. I would say, yeah, basically the whole what I think is if we learn, there's people that we can learn by, but all of our learnings need to be um, put in a frame of constant flux and ability to change and adjust. And the thing is, people need to try out their own ways of working, especially in fashion. There's so many like, okay, well, you could do it this way, you could do it that way, blah, 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 whatever. But like, why? Why does it have to have this structure? You can create your own structure. Like the point is like, if you want to run a brand, why do you want a brand? Like, why do you want it? Like you have to think about the purpose, what kind of things you're going to create, all of that stuff um, to inform the structure that you want to put underneath it. But also these things can change all the time. Maybe one year you do this, next year you do that. Like I think what the vice is with fashion is this need for stability and oh well buyers want to buy at this time and all of that. Actually buyers need to become more flexible and also you don't even need to sell to buyers. You can just sell to people. Maybe you don't even sell. Maybe what you do is an initiative that actually provides clothes to people whatever it is mm. you know like people need to um try and break away from structures where they're reliant on people that are also unwilling to change and don't have their interests at heart mm. yeah and i think that advice could apply to any business not just the fashion industry in terms 100%. of being agile and the ability to change certainly in i mean current climates definitely but even previous and future ones in terms of that you know the only constant is change Mm. Um, just touching on fashion before we move on and mm. and I know you've recently sort of closed hangar but in terms of the you know the future of fashion and its role mm. its importance its impact I uh, would be good mm. just to get your thoughts on, on 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 where you see that evolving okay I mean wow there's a lot of stuff going on the thing is, fashion is like, everyone thinks fashion is an innovator, but it's really dragging its ass in the past, isn't it? So the thing is, there is so much potential in fashion to create things that are building the, you know, the futures that we want. Also things that are exciting and to create things that are fun. I have a lot of faith 
actually in people and especially in like the new people, new designers, like also just like new ideas. But the thing is, these things take a little bit of time. And it's really about um, the switching around of the, you know, the power structures within within fashion and how they can be like adjusted in ways that actually like help things become more fluid. But also, you know, like for for example, like this year, everybody, even though we could have um, done digital shows before, now they actually finally did it because we had to because of COVID. So it's wonderful to see that um, when people are forced <laughs> to do it, they can do it. But the next thing is, is about actually let's choose to do it when we're able to do it instead of having to, you know, have our arm twisted into that situation. So that's what I'd really like, you know, I'd really like to bring that into fashion somehow to help people explore these ideas of how we can present, also how to interact. Because clothes, clothes don't literally just have, you know, have to be something that we wear to keep warm or for a status symbol. Like there is, you know, we could use clothing for anything. We could use clothing for health, for revolution, you know, for learning, for connectivity, like clothes can be used for an infinite amount of things because it's a material and, you know, the power of fibers and materials are like pretty much limitless if we like, we put some imagination into it. And especially like, you know, there's so much potential to gear, um, you know, really what you call combine um, fashion with, um, you know, like biotech. Just interesting stuff that can literally change the way that we live, the way that we actually interact with garments and the relationships we have with objects um, and anything like that. I think there is literally so much potential. And I'm not even a specialist in, you know, biotech or whatever or fibres, but I have an imagination. And I know that there's people with a bigger imagination and more knowledge than I have. So I am, I'm excited to see what's going to happen. And I'm hoping that I can be one of those people that goes in and like rustles people up and gets them a bit more ready to, uh, you know, do some more exciting stuff instead of just like make a cute leather bag because that's really boring. And is that, is that the plan now in terms of getting people to rustle some feathers? <laughs> or, help, um, or helping people yeah. at least? Yeah, I mean, I want to do both those things. Like, essentially, what I'm moving into a couple of different kind of streams of work, but one of them is, um, yeah, the main one is also in fashion, but it's in this kind of actually working with the people. And it's, we're building a, an agency of my partner and a friend of ours, Faith. Faith, you know, she works in a well, she has worked in previously for seven years in like an NGO, the biggest uh, like fashion platform out of Copenhagen. And then my partner Flo, she has, you know, like a lot of brand experience and with talent and like building those kind of calls. So like what we're going to do all together is essentially like I really want us to transform people looking at brands as just the brand and actually look at the people that are in there. Right. Because brands aren't just like one entity. They are everybody that's inside. Yeah. So 
a lot of the stuff that we want to do is really educating people around obviously sustainability and ethics but also like how to transform themselves and their practices and essentially open people up to a space where changing things within their system don't feel like you know um, really anarchic and scary things but actually they're things that start from you and trickle out into how you act in the world and also how you do business and this is uh cogdis i'm not sure how you pronounce yes. it yes yeah yes that's perfect cogdis yeah cogdis salt studio and um it's you know it's based around the idea of cognitive dissonance which is what we all do all the time is acting in a way that's actually different from our beliefs so wanting to do something but maybe we're not able to do that you know in real life but also sometimes the other thing is more convenient or maybe more sparkly so what we're trying to do is actually align people's intentions you know from between the head and the heart so actually what they feel that they want to do they can actually access that path and actually walk down it and you know take the action as opposed to being like oh but I'd like to be good in this space but you know maybe people don't know how and they just need a light shining on something or just like a bit of a toolkit because I think a lot of, especially in this year, you know, things are being unpicked uh, or let's say ripped apart. <laughs> unpicked so, is a slight understatement. <laughs> <laughs> tiny, tiny understatement. <laughs> Rip the hell apart. And, you know, so this is like, okay, well, what have we got left and where do we want to go? So for me, like some of the really integral work that we have to do is showing people that you know, readjusting or just showing people different ways of being and communicating are not terrifying. These are things that actually make things easier for you. They make you feel less pressure, especially, you know, what we have around a lot of sustainability and ethics talk is this idea of perfectionism. And perfectionism is in itself oppressive because it allows for no growth. It allows for no mistakes. And we all need to be you know, a little bit more comfortable in making mistakes because only through making mistakes we learn. All of my big learnings have been through mistakes and I don't call them mistakes, they're learnings. So, you know, it's about, oh, okay, maybe that wasn't that good and I can do better this time by doing this, you know. There is no need to be absolutely perfect. The world is not perfect. We are not perfect. We're human. So what we put out into the world also doesn't have to be. It just has to be, you know, a step in the right direction at the very least otherwise what are we doing that's a good question claire um <laughs> so cogdis this is this hasn't launched yet right no not um, quite so well your instagram doesn't say so anyway and if, if that's an indication yeah. of what's real or not uh i mean i'll let you decide um, <laughs> instagram has all the facts didn't you know <laughs> <laughs> no because what we're doing now essentially we are um, we're talking to people we are doing the connecting and this connecting work and really seeing that like, what people need right now because I think a lot of and what is that uh, generally oh I mean people want to learn people <laughs> want to hug yeah they want <laughs> they want to feel the love they're like I wish you were together same but everybody basically what people want is everybody wants to be better that's unanimous it's just about being able to give people the tools and show them the way to do that and it's you know that in itself is really simple but I think a lot of the stuff for me personally anyway um, as well as with Cogdis is really about disseminating information 
and getting people information. And this is, you know, across the board, citizens and people in general, not just people that work in brands, but everybody on the earth. It's just about, you know, getting information, getting data, doing that type of, you know, insight work and being able to give it to people in a way that's palatable and they can understand. Mm. Because I think a lot of learnings that um, would be really helpful for people are blocked or gatekeeped by um, exclusionary language that people can't bloody understand. So like, even sometimes when I read reports on sustainability, I'm like, I'm lost 100 and I'm highly intelligent and I love to read. But the language is just, it gives you brain farts because it's just boring, you know? And um, there's ways that these, this essential information, we all need to know about this. But the thing is, we all speak different languages. So that's, um, yeah, that's kind of one of the main things is doing this kind of translating work for people and making things open. Because also at the same time, you know, um, there's a real change in how I see um, information spreading. And what we want to do, you know, it's not like we're here to just educate people as we are the teachers. We're all learning at the same time. Every single thing we do is collaborative and it's always a conversation. Um, I'm not here to lecture anybody because also I personally find that boring. Like I want to have a conversation. I want you to ask me questions and tell me your point of view because our perspectives obviously are based on our own, which is one perspective and one reality. Every single person, object, animal, experiences a completely different reality so like that you know we all need to share information that's not from this top down I'm teaching you perspective to actually we collectively learn together so that's you know that's really at the heart of our mission is this collective learning and this movement yeah it's fascinating and uh, yeah I fully subscribe and applaud it and I think there's a some shared values as well in terms of betterment and growth and you know the reason why we're called protein um you know, mm. is about exactly that um so yeah excited for that journey um and yeah, uh, <laughs> evolution um just to quickly touch on that point you mentioned around sort of the dissemination of this information and um mm. uh, education and it would be good to get your thoughts on, and this isn't in Instagram like specifically, but you know, let's yeah. wrap them up as the platforms, yes. um, and really their role in that conversation, um, both you know, positive and negative, because their yeah. uh, their influence and their sort of size, their you know, monopoly. Um, mm. you know, can't be, um, you know, we can't hide from. Um, mm. So just curious to hear your thoughts on it because, you know, they're too, oh, I think there's an evolution from, or maybe it's a, a return to, um, you know, mm. world is cyclic after all, you know, back to these smaller groups, these smaller communities, these, you know, trusted networks, these safe safe places. Uh, but yeah, I would love to get your thoughts on, and you know, this is through a lens of Cogdis in terms of a, mm. a, 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 a purpose, a, a platform with a purpose to disseminate and, you know, mm. which platforms would, are you looking at to, to do this, uh, you know, most effectively? 
Oh, okay. I honestly, my I flip fuck with this all the time, and I talk about it all the time. Because on like when it comes to social media, all of those types of platforms, I am bored with them. <laughs> like if I go onto Instagram, I go on it to work. Like I'm not really, or I'm like you know, obviously half of my time on Instagram is funny memes, and the other time is for me to plug something. But the time is less and less. You know, I really kind of deleted Instagram for a lot of this year. Um, just because it made me feel like I had to put out stuff when I, I didn't have to. It was just, you know, it's like this invisible obligation of somebody telling me that, oh, well, why aren't you updating people with what you're doing? First of all, no one cares. Second of all, I've got better things to do with my time. So it's really, it's really hard because with the things I love about Instagram is the sharing of knowledge. Like, it's so powerful. There's stuff going on everywhere that you can come across and learn from you know and you know like especially in particular with all of these types of infographic ways of sharing information and you know like adding this combination of um here are some life skills or you know a nice way to deal with um things around mental health and then paired with good visuals i mean you can't knock the combination because it lands, you know. With some random cat memes thrown in. Exactly. <laughs> Let's get a cat in there and then it's delectable. But, you know, it's... Um, so, it's for me, it swings and roundabouts because I recognise the power, but also at the same time, I really want to be giving people information that enables them to enact change in real life and in offline life because I know there's a lot of power in digital but we need to use digital as the tool it's intended and not as, you know, this is our reality. Like it can be a reality, but it's not the one. This is not, you know, we should, we are, you know, personally, I prefer to live in my physical body. And any information that I'm, you know, a lot of the information that I actually look at on the platforms is to do with you know spirituality and witchcraft i can't like because that's the most exciting stuff you know there's some interesting stuff around in the like you know fashion tech sustainability sphere but even in you know let's learn about fashion sustainability it's just so boring it's like, i don't want to see another infographic i don't want to see a graph like i want things that are going to make me feel excited or you know open up my mind to new ideas mm. So, I mean, with Cogdis especially, like, this is something we've been talking about because, you know, we can reach people on there and we can give information out on there. But also at the same time, I don't want to keep people hooked to our Instagram. I don't, like, I don't want to create that relationship with people, you know? And What relationship yeah, so are you the, looking to create? I want to give people tools for them to expand internally in their own time, which doesn't happen, have to happen in front of a screen. Maybe the screen is the spark, but, you know, ideally that's just the tip of the iceberg and then everything else is within themselves, how they operate in the world or, you know, some sort of like activity that isn't online. Um, and I think it's really important for us to remember the importance of doing things in real life. Like, I think a lot of the... 
a lot of the stuff I do as a tarot reader when I'm giving people prescriptions or like things that they can do, you know, to do to work through some of the things that we've gone through in the reading is simple stuff that, you know, go walk outside in the grass with your feet actually on the ground and tell me how that feels. And people are like, oh, my God, man. <laughs> that was crazy and I'm like oh my god I know right it's wild you literally went outside and put your feet on the ground but people forget to do that you know and it's like sometimes you just need to remind like some you know sometimes I need a reminding go outside and breathe some fresh air and have a walk and it's um you know there's a way more complex and interactive things that you can do with that but that's you know that's the simplest rung of the scale here but it's really effective. Mm. So for me, it's like there's an important weight between the social, you know, digital interaction, but channeling that into something that really brings us back to the organic and the natural, right? Because that's where the real power lies. Mm. I'm glad we got onto the tarot reading bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's your tarot reader's name? Oh, well, I use my Japanese name, which is Yurika or Yuri for my tarot reading, um, basically because I prefer that name. And I use Claire for, you know, the English folks. Um, and I use Yurika for my Asian folk. But Yuri is a good, you know, in-between. And where and how did this form part of your journey, part of your story? So, um, okay, so with tarot, I suppose I, I've had a few friends that um, use cards, not specifically tarot cards, but like what you'd call oracle or goddess cards um, casually. And, you know, we'd have evenings and we'd do them and it was fun. I'd be like, oh, my God, so accurate. And, but, and then I kind of like found that, you know, I was translating the messages in the cards really easily and intuitively. And yeah, so one day I just thought, oh, okay, maybe I'll just buy a deck of cards then and I'll see what it's like. So I found a deck of cards online, which is like totally my style because it's like a granddad set of cards. It's just, it hasn't got any people. It's just different types of crystals and it looks really retro. And I was like, that's it. Perfect. Um, so I bought it. I hadn't opened it yet. And then I um, went and saw my healer. She, and, you know, my healer, she specializes in business, actually. So most of the time we go there, we chat business um, and talk about my new projects and stuff like that. And then she was like, you know what? Everything you just said was so boring. And I was like, oh, my God, I know. It was really boring. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I felt bored telling you that. So let's talk about something else. <laughs> Wait, is that her approach for healing? Is that like tough love? Oh, well, she's she's straight up. She's very similar to me. She's straight up. She would just tell me, and I'm like, "Do you need to just tell me?" Because also, like, I I feel that, you know. Um, and you know, she's my healer. She's not going to lie to me. She's here. She's here to help me grow. So I was like, you know what, Kate, you are not wrong. That was boring as hell. So she <laughs> she's like, well, what else is going on? Um, and I was like, right, so I've taken up pole dance a month ago and I just bought a deck of tarot cards. And she was like, that is it, tarot. And then because basically, you know, she's she's doing some spiritual stuff at the same time. And she was like, yeah, the people, yeah, they're saying tarot is it. This is it. And then we, we did like a quick meditation exercise around it. And I was like, 
damn like I pulled a, a deck of cards, I shuffled a deck of cards in my mind, pulled a card, which was exactly what we're talking about. I went home, opened my deck, shuffled it, that card came out. And I was like, wow, you are like crystal clear. So that was like the beginning. And then... So when, when was this? Was, How long ago? This was in like the... This was like the beginning of this year, right at the beginning. And yeah, and also, you know, when I get into something... You know, I've actually, I will say, when I was younger, from 13, I was really deeply into witchcraft. Like, I had all of the daggers, all of the crystals, the works. I think everything kind of fizzled out when I started smoking weed and, you know, hanging out with some crazy people. But it was basically, you know, like when you rediscover something that you previously loved and it's like you just forgot about it. And I was like, oh, my God, I love this. So I... You know, I spent the next, I would say, three months studying and practicing. So memorizing all the cards and reading for everybody. Anybody, anybody want reading? <laughs> I would, yeah. Reading everyone, practicing and reading books nonstop because I love to read. So I ordered like, you know, obviously a thousand books on tarot and like sped through them all. Um, and then practice loads. And it's one of those things where... Um, as soon as I picked up, it was all of the messages were clear to me and everything was, I will, I will say easy, you know, it's easy and it was enjoyable work. Like, you know, sometimes the messages take a bit longer to work through, but everything is also, it's about collaboration and speaking and like, you know, going through the meanings with the person who you're reading for to come you know, I'm not the kind of reader that's like, you are going to have this, this is going to happen in three months, you know, this might happen. The point is for the other person to actually um, also tell me how they feel about it. I'm not here to lecture you on your future. I could do that, but also that's boring. And the future is not set in stone. If I tell you that and you believe it, you will make that happen. But if I tell you you have the power to change that, you will change that if you want to. So everything I do is that, is that to and fro. And um, and everything felt, you know, it was, yeah, it just came very naturally to me. And I think obviously in my ancestral lines, there's people that have been doing this work. So it's just tarot is a tool. It's nothing more than a tool to communicate ideas through, right? So it's the same as anything. I could use a pendulum. I could use a crystal ball. I could do, I could literally tear an A4 piece of paper up into, you know, 20 pieces write things on that and shuffle that it you know it can be anything it could some some of the things i use are kids games tools actually which give great results like what but yeah i have these i have one set which is like tiny little cards they're cut they're like scrabble but it's in card form and it's just got letters on and i will shuffle those and get letters from that if i want like a name or like a specific word or essentially, you can turn anything into divination tool if you want to. Amazing. So does this <laughs> translate to the world of Zoom? Yeah, of course. Like, um, because a lot of the time when I was practicing, everything was online. The only people I could practice on in real life were my housemates. And then everybody else I did on Zoom and WhatsApp calls. And it's the same, you know, like the the digital experience is no barrier to connecting energy whatsoever. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, it's also really fun. 
Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'll, I'd, I'd, I'd be up for a session, Claire. 100%. Okay. Let's book it. Um, I think the last time, I think the only time, it was in New York and late at night, uh, one sort of street tarot lady. Um, yeah. And I don't even really remember what she said. It was so late. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> It happens a lot of the time when you do those nighttime drunk ones. You're like, I'm sure there was a good message there, but I had no idea what it was. (laughs) At the time, it was amazing. That's what I did remember. But actually what it was, it was like, oh, what did she say again? (laughs) Yeah. You talked about your lineage then and would love to dip into a little bit your um you know your family your history and uh, and I know you've been quite open and vocal about your passing of your of your dad um yes. and yeah we'd love to just hear a little bit more about you know your early years and uh, you know how that's defined and uh, informed and you know directed uh, where you are mm. now um so maybe let's start with that in terms of where you, uh, yeah, where you where you okay. where you were brought up, brothers sisters, you know, your the early Claire. Okay, so the early years. Sometimes I forget about talking about the early years. The early years are kind of crazy. So I grew up in London with my Japanese mum, my Jamaican but London-born dad. Whereabouts my, in London? Yeah, um, North Hornsey and Harrow. I mainly grew up so all north. Um, I grew up a little bit in Forest Gate, but that was only for like a year or so. Um, and then the rest of it was basically in Harrow and Hornsey. Um, so, yeah, and yeah, me and my little brother and then my parents were a small family unit of four. But obviously we had m- most of our relatives also lived in London and family, friends. Um, but I will say that so the main thing actually about my childhood is that I grew up as a kid in the cult of the Moonies, which is the Unification Church, which is, um, for people that don't know, essentially it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> but it's, it's um, yeah, it's like one of those religions that was really popular back in the, I don't know, like 60s, 70s. It was based on the principles of free love, and that anybody can love anyone. That's why it's called the Unification Church. And it's that church that did those mass weddings in stadiums, right, where people um, were matched with, um, yeah, with other members of the church to be married on that day, and they didn't meet until that day. So my parents hadn't met until they got married. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. And that's why everyone's like, oh, my God, how do you have such a crazy mix? I'm like, because they were put together very randomly. Um, and uh, a lot of the marriages within that church are obviously similar. Very People from very, very different locations put together. And successfully in terms of that marriage? Oh, my parents. Yeah. I mean, a miracle. But they, you know, they're a very good match. They were married for 32 years when my dad died. And my dad... Me and my dad are very similar. We're like the same person. And my mum and my brother are very similar. And my mum is, um, she's very grounded. She's very spiritual. Um, and she's very sweet. <laughs> and she really is like the provider. Like she's not like the big dreamer, but she will make it possible for, you know, she'll be, build the launch pad for you to spring from, essentially. Nice and then my dad is like me 
we're like, you know, the ones that are like, right, I want to do this. I want to go out here. I want to do that. So we're the ones that are like flying all over the place. So my mum has always been that kind of like, she is the provider. She is like the rock and the builder. And my dad was also a builder, but in a way less sturdy way. You know, he did a lot of different um, professions. Like I remember he was working for Dialeride. I don't know if that's still going back in the day. They obviously treated him like crap. Um, and he did a lot of like different service jobs, a lot of driving jobs. He's always done driving jobs and lots of jobs with people. But then he also, you know, we're both really into gemstones. And so he got into um, valuing diamonds. I learned how to value diamonds and started working with companies over in the Congo and then later Mozambique um, with the like mining projects and, you know, stuff like that. Some of them were really bloody hairy, but also, you know, um, he was having a great time. So that's really all that matters, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, that I guess my upbringing was stable, but also really unstable. Like we moved... We moved from London to near Cambridge when I was, I honestly can't remember. I think I was between the ages of 10, 11 or 12, something like that. I was young. Either way, I wasn't happy because it was a surprise. Um, and yeah, I think it, that was part because, you know, we kind of left the church. We needed to go. And my mum had been made redundant at that job and we couldn't really afford stuff. And, you know all of these things together. So that's when I had this big change of scene into the countryside. Um, and I will say I cried a long time because I was like, you know, coming from North London into the middle of the countryside where every single person looks like they're over 100 and white and hates you, it's not hot. You know, it doesn't make you feel happy, especially as a kid. So um, so it was a, it was a rough start to the move but in the end actually growing up for my teenagers in the countryside was in a way quite liberating because I got to do a lot of weird stuff you know like what well I don't know. I ask? You, know, <laughs> you know what kids do in nature they just play around burn things get high drive around in mud you know just like fun stuff where you can like explore and just be like wild and free without you know I feel like London has a tendency to put you in this kind of adulting phase where when I lived out there I could come back into London but I spent most of my time being a little bit more wild you know feral. and like doing that kind of stuff yeah being the feral child that I deserved to be so there was you know that was a good a good aspect of that move and um and, you know, it was a, obviously a big lesson in race and what it's like to live in the rest of England, right, and how people treat you. And, and it really changes how you act in the world, especially with your idea of yourself as a black person, with, you know, people telling me what I was, what I wasn't was. And, I, you know, that's very confusing for a kid because you lot can't tell me nothing, actually. Um, but you don't know that when you're a kid. So, yeah, it was a confusing time. But um, and that but only happened. <clears throat> and that only happened when you moved out of town. In terms of that realization of your identity. No, definitely not. But just on a really um, on a bigger scale, 
I think, because I'd obviously experienced that in London and mainly in school, because that's where you encounter like people from different cultural backgrounds. But at least in London with, you know, the people, the kids that I played with on my street, like, you know, the people that I knew in life, like family members, friends and stuff like that. That was cool. You know, as a kid, there was no beef there. Everything was great. The main problem was actually when I was in school. And I, I used to have people, you know, calling me Asian slurs. And I'd be like, hun, you've not even got the right place. So I know what you're trying to say, but you're saying it wrong. And also, like, don't even say that. But it wasn't, so it's not like it was the first place I'd really thought about my identity, but it really actually pushed me to adjust who I thought I was and how I was allowed to act and all of these things. And, you know, when I went to my school um, school there, in our form, they put all of the three... Mixed race girls in the year, we were all in one form together because I was like, isn't that, I didn't, honestly, I didn't even realize that for, I think, a year or so. I didn't think about it. And then afterwards, I was like, oh, isn't that funny that we're all in the same year? I wonder why. And then in a way, I'm grateful because, you know, I really loved them. We were best friends, all of us together. But at the same time, there's also something um, weird in that as well and it's you know moving from somewhere where you see black people every single day to the yeah to not seeing any apart from you know in the school there'd be a smattering let's say maximum 10 black people in the entire school Mm -hmm. and it's like being cast out into the desert where you're suddenly the real minority and you're like damn well this is different (laughs) so yeah it is a uh, yeah. It was it was challenging, but also I think those are those are valuable lessons for me to learn at the same time. Yeah, defining it sounds like, and equally, uh, and you know, with due respect, sort of something I can't relate. Um, uh, being a, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a white male. Um, Absolutely not. You would have no idea. Um, my my only and it's not even an an, an an analogy is sort of growing up in the Middle East, which is where I was brought into the world. So, oh cool. By definition, being white and male, you know, you are the minority, um, mm. but for very different reasons. Um, mm. But I think uh, you know, in just early years. Uh, uh, you know, are, are informative. They're defining uh, in terms of who you are, and more importantly, who you're not. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, I can fully appreciate that. Um, you know, those challenges and how they are now uh, evolving, playing out, surfacing for all the wrong reasons, but the right reasons in terms of the dialogue, yes. the conversation, and what is hopefully now changing. Um, you know, yeah. across the planet uh and in small steps and larger steps which um yeah i'm i'm certainly grateful for to see and you know i think we're all trying to do what we can in terms of realizing our privilege and position uh however Mm. humble and um 
you know, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, I don't think there's any any denying it uh, in terms of really addressing it and adjusting for it. Yeah, I think to be honest, like anything that is um, really looking at and unpicking and going through with a fine tooth comb and examining yourself, it better be painful. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. Yeah, <laughs> it feels so true. Absolutely fine. You're literally not doing anything then because to examine yourself, interrogate yourself, you've got at least to feel a little bit of the burn of that lamp on your face, right? If you haven't got that, then you're just giving yourself a little, oh, cute pat on the back. I read this book and I've, you know, I've spoken to many people this year that are like, yes, I'm doing this work. I'm really trying to become anti-racist and all of this stuff and, you know, reading things and reposting things. And I'm like, okay, cool. So, like, what are you actually changing in your life? Like, actually in your life to make change, to help people in your community? It doesn't have to be monumental. It can be anything. But, like, you reading a book and then saying, oh, great, I've read that. How pointless is that? I don't care if you've read any books, if you haven't done anything. Have you, you know, you have to also think about your... I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm not rich. I can't do this and I can't do that. But there's so many things that we can do. And also, I have to say, self-sacrifice is a must. And I think everybody is so attached to this idea of comfort. And the reason why it's so hard for people that don't live any sort of like um, oppressed, uh, you know, black POC existence is because they've lived in this comfort that's so hard to get rid of, right? But when you've lived under oppression for an, ex, you know, since you were born, living in this state comes naturally. This is how it is. So you're used to doing this, like, unpicking. You're used to transforming into different states and adjusting yourself. And that is second nature. Whereas, you know, if you come from a place of comfort, you're like, oh, what the hell is this arresting feeling? It's like, you know, nails on the on a blackboard but for us that's absolutely normal and we've been born doing that and we've been doing that with compassion the whole time yeah i hear you it's so true um and uh, yeah and your point of it if it's if <laughs> maybe it's too direct an analogy of feeling the burn of the lamp um but yeah it is it's a spotlight it's an interrogation mm -hmm. of yourself that really needs to be done you know, properly. Otherwise, you're, mm. you're exactly right. There's no point doing it. Mm. Um, just I'm conscious of time, and yeah, sorry, I no, always, no, no, I no, talk no. A lot. I'm not. <laughs> don't don't apologize, please. Um, I'm really enjoying this. I I wanted to I, I just to bring, come back to your point about your dad. Um, and mm. the uh, you know, his role in your you know, your, your upbringing, um, but also yeah. you, you as a person. Um, mm. And and also, as as we briefly we touched on in terms of him, him passing away uh, and mm. really sort of what that meant to you and how, you're, uh, you, know, how you adjusted to that. Um, we, we'd love to, hear, mm. love to hear your thoughts on it. Yes. Okay, so my dad, I, to be honest, forever I, I will always talk about my dad, even in all of my interviews, because he was... Um, my biggest inspiration, like creatively, a lot of my um, my tastes are actually informed by what he got me onto. 
So, for example, uh, you know, he was martial arts and martial arts film. My love for cinema comes from my dad. Like he would show me the most outrageous films from any age. He would always forget that there was a thing as, you know, age certification. Sometimes he would like send me to the shop to buy him beers and then the shop owner would be like, but you're 12? You can't. <laughs> Your dad <laughs> can't my dad. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, literally I'd be like, but they're for my dad and he'd be like, I don't care, that's illegal. So my <laughs> my daddy would you know, he would show me basically anything that he deemed interesting, he would also show me. For example, what are those inappropriate movies? Um, oh basically just like incredibly violent or horrific <laughs> films. <laughs> when you're 12 yeah 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 yeah, literally um but I you know my mum hates horror but me and my brother and my dad love horror so we would watch these really really disturbing films and my mum would be like oh my god no I'm going upstairs but any basically anything like that obviously he showed me a lot of music and just um I think he he had a big breadth of what he liked, right? So, um, for example, my main take, if we talk about music, he obviously loves, like, Miles Davis, ska, reggae, all of the things you would expect a Jamaican man to, um, to like. But also, you know, he showed me a lot of classical and, in particular, Gregorian chants. We cannot forget about the Gregorian chant. He had like a really good, he was also a musician and he worked as a musician in the church to like travel around tour and raise money for the church. And he played the drums and was a bassist and did a little bit of singing. So he was, um, he was a very creative guy. So um, he really informed me on, yeah, a lot of things that I think about. Also a lot of the ways I think, because we, um, I used to love talking to my dad. We'd obviously, you know, as you can imagine, we, me talking with myself, we would just go on forever. So we would have very lengthy talks that may be about nothing at all. Or they may be out about real, you know, real life stuff. That's like really transformative. But he was a great person to bounce ideas off or also just challenge and be like, yeah, but what about this though? And that's what I love because he wasn't ever scared of being wrong because he was wrong, I'd tell him. He would, you know, he's, he was an older man, obviously. He was my dad. So sometimes he would say things and I'd be like, oh, my God, that is actually offensive. You know how old people used to say the word queer as an insult? And he'd be like, oh, I don't mean it as an insult. And I was like, yeah, but that's how it's, you know, this was before we reclaimed queer. And he'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What should I say? And then I would tell him. And then he'd be like, cool, I stand corrected. You know, he was never like, oh, well, I'm correct. If I told him he was wrong, he'd be like, well, damn, okay, I'm wrong, you know. And I really enjoyed that because it means that we can go back and forth and we can be open about stuff and not precious. So, yeah, also, you know, just about my dad, he was obviously the greatest dad that's ever lived. He was, the, everybody that's met him says that he's the most friendliest. He was the most friendliest, like he literally is. He could make friends with a stone. 
and they would be enchanted. So <laughs> turn it into a crystal. <laughs> Literally. Um, yeah. So you know, when he died, it was very sudden. He was only fifty-seven, and he died of a heart attack. And it was obviously the biggest shock I've ever experienced in my entire life. And you only know that kind of shock when it happens to you. And before that, I'd always thought, I'm so lucky. I've never had anybody close to me really die. You know, I'd always think that. And I'd be like, I wonder when it's going to happen. And then, bam, it happens, because that's Mm. how life happens. Um, And it was one of those experiences that really shakes you to the core. And in that shaking, you know, it's like sifting, where you sift, sift, sift through this dirt. And then in the action, what's left is the pure gems. And in doing that, it's like I went through all of this obviously deep sadness and really reflecting on what he brought to my life. But also in doing that, I, you know, I deep dived into this sadness and this grief. And in really going into it, I was able to um, transform that and accept it. And, you know, the acceptance just, I think I was... You have to go through these different um, things. You know, everyone talks about grief. Grief comes in waves. And of course it does. But for me, the waves aren't forever. I'm not sad that my dad's dead. Like, that was his time to die. I'm not going to say, you know, oh, he was taken too soon. Like, there's some evil dude, like, trying to park him into the afterlife or whatever. That was just his time. And I have to accept that. I'm not trying to beef with someone about it. There's nobody to beef with. Like, you know, it, that would just be ridiculous. Like, he died when he died, and that is the end of that story. Like, now he's doing some other stuff, having a great time, obviously. But once you accept, actually, that this is part of life, this is the experience, and that kind of exception of our mortality and the mortality of others is intrinsic to our growth as human beings and actually how we can activate ourselves in this world to do what we're supposed to do, which is live life as if, yes, I might walk out that door and die in two seconds, because that's the truth. I think the main reason why people have such difficulty dealing with grief or even saying the word death like it's bloody Voldemort is because everyone thinks that we're immortal, which is downright ridiculous, because everybody knows the one thing that we are sure of is that we're all going to die. So it's, you know, I am, I'm really grateful for that experience, actually, to kind of be able to step into actually who I really need to be as a human being from gaining that perspective and um, by doing that transformative work. Because also a lot of people that speak to me about um, death or grief are like, oh, well, you know, it's always going to be sad and tragic and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't put that vibe on my dad's death. It's not sad. Like, it's just for some reason, I'm not sure about the rest of Western culture, but, you know, I know about England or British culture and everyone treats death as a sad event, which it is not. Like, there is sadness involved, involved, but also there is celebration to be had. Like, we need to appreciate the life and appreciate what's going to happen after not just you know drag the whole thing into an area of negativity and sadness and like glumness because how dry is that don't you dare like you know commemorate my life with 
oh, boo-hoo, this is super sad. Like, everyone better be having a party, smoking joints and having a great time because that's how I lived my life, you know? It would be an insult to do anything else. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Um, yeah, I mean, that's beautiful how you've uh, yeah, articulated that and um, quite an Eastern philosophy in terms of your appreciation and understanding and acceptance of it and I completely agree I I, I lost my dad uh, oh over 10 years ago now um mm. and uh, yeah there is obviously loss um and mm. you know shock uh but you know there is acceptance uh, and and mm. learnings to be to be had mm. from it and and celebration and we had a and we had a great party uh, and you know, yeah <laughs> great we did and you know that was also we're not here to talk about my dad um but you know that was his vibe and his mm. how he showed up um that mm. never changed so it 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 feels appropriate to recognize and respect that person that human that individual in 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 the right way so yeah exactly i think um it is, it's basically, it's kind of a, the way of thinking about death in any other place that's not here. You know, this is what they do in, I mean, Jamaica, the party is like weeks. It's a long, it's a long time. And it's a party, like an actual party. And, you know, in a lot of obviously like Asian, Southeast Asian, um, yeah, a lot of other cultures, people are, celebrating you know experiencing joy like there is a time for sadness yes let's wail together and cry it out and then let's you know let's shake it out and have a great time afterwards mm. I think it's um it's also really when it comes down to it it's about decolonizing the way that we think about human life and actually the purpose of life and how we live it and how we celebrate it mm. because these if you really welcome you know, it's about the circle of life and knowing that we are part of nature. We don't stand outside of nature. We are nature. And once you, you know, live your life through that lens and in that way of thinking, then recognizing death is nothing but also planting a seed. Yeah. And, and then it's not, it's not a sad thing. Yeah, it's a rebirth. Yes. There is a a definite constant of spirituality through your life and parental upbringing. Um, if you could, how would you sort of define that in terms of the, uh, it's not a church, but the, the analogy of the, of, of, of a religious, you know, thinking, where, where would you place I yourself? Mean, I, from, <laughs> Since I was a kid, even when I was in the church and I was like five, I was questioning the church because I'm one of those types of thinkers. Which church was this? The the Unification Church. The, the Unification that's Church. The only, yeah. yeah, that's the only church I've been in. So when I was young, I remember one time we were eating and everybody who's in this church has to have a picture of the leader, Sung Pyong Moon, on, you know, somewhere. And you... Uh, you know, you bless the food, give thanks to this dude, and then you eat, right? Traditional format. I remember saying to my parents, if, why are we 
why are we doing that? Why are we blessing the food to this guy? Isn't he a human? And did you not just tell me that all humans are equal? And then in such a case, why are we why are we doing blessing this to him? Why are we thanking him? Should we not just be thanking God? And then obviously my parents are like, oh, um, <laughs> shit. She's found out. Wait, you that said there's... that when you were five? <laughs> oh, hon, I've been saying things forever. <laughs> Just shut up and eat your lunch. Yeah. Yeah, no, literally. They were like, well, that's a real question, Claire, and we'll have to get back to you on that one. So, <laughs> so basically, since the beginning of I Can Remember, I've been really, really anti organized religion because any example I see of it is laced with patriarchy. Every single iteration. Even the ones that I'm like, oh, they're kind of cute. And then I'm like, oh, wait, but you do that. Okay, cool. It's like there's so many paths that we could be taking, but they're all built on a foundation which is inherently rotten. So, you know, there's all of these different paths we have. And they're all trying to get to the same goal, but they've all been polluted with something. And this also comes with cultural, societal stuff you know, stuff that's happened in colonization. Essentially, what I think is the only real religions that I'm into are matriarchal religions, and that's it. Um, those are the only ones that are of a network structure that talk about the land as mother. And basically, the way that we construct things are not in a hierarchical system. If anything is hierarchical, then it's, it's ungodly. <laughs> And also, if anything has an imposed system, it's not spiritual. A lot of things, you know, I've talked to a lot of spiritual people, obviously, and I meet people that have just been, you know, in this ashram or whatever it is. And they're like, yeah, I spoke to someone the other day. We were talking about a certain type of meditation, opening up certain channels. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, you could just adjust that and then maybe focus on this and, you know boost the energy this way and they were like yeah but no I'm not allowed to do that like everything that I'm taught is that's how it is and it's unchangeable and I'm like bro how boring is that why is it unchangeable spirituality is a personal experience it doesn't come from a textbook you can get teachings but if you cannot transform it it's not truly yours so all of these things are to you know those things create structures so there's followers and there's teachers the person who is learning is also the teacher. If that isn't enabled, then it's not a fair exchange in my eyes. So to be honest, like I, you know, I get that I can appreciate other people um, practicing religions because there is a lot of spirituality. There's a lot of, you know, amazing energy that goes on. Like the faith is a wonderful thing. But I have to say, when it comes to anything with imposed rules and structures, we really need to think about where they come from. Why are they there? Why are you, why are pieces of knowledge, you know, withheld from you, right? Why does there have to be somebody who communicates with spirit for you? Why can you not communicate with spirit yourself? Like, what the hell is that? You know, it's not like only some of us have got the exclusive line. Everybody can get on the phone, right? And that it, that's realistic. And anything that states otherwise, that, oh, you know, you can learn from a teacher, but your teacher should also teach you. 
that you can teach them and that you can do whatever you want. Because really, you know, if we look at um, African traditional religions, all of them are fluid. And as people came into contact with people with other practices, there's, if you want, there's an exchange of practice or, you know, gods, goddesses, whatever these things are, things are so fluid. It's like, you know, atoms colliding, taking pieces from one another, leaving some, leave what you don't like, take what you want. This is fluid. And this is engaging and it's vital, right? It's exciting and it creates new possibility. But when you take that concept, make it linear and put it in a rule book, nothing, the universe does not work like that. You look at anything, it doesn't work like that. Anything that's natural or organic, it grows because of luck, chance, encounter, connection. Like, you know, these things should be organic. If it has to be like set out as a, as a rule, or you can't do this, you can't do that, then that's a structure that I don't think is conducive to spiritual growth. And also at the end of the day, like, you know, all of these things like um, we have the Ten Commandments and everyone's supposed to learn these Ten Commandments. I'm like, what you need to be teaching people is not to memorize the Ten Commandments. It's just so they actually know how to practice that in daily life without being like, thou must not steal, da-da-da. People still doing that shit even though you've told them. You, know, you need to tell people actually how to be a good person and how to create these commandments for themselves in their own language, from their own tongue. Yes. Was that a bit of a tirade there? Sorry. No, that was excellent. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question because it's uh, you're incredibly eloquent, can I say, Claire, on some very important points. Um, oh, thank uh, you very much. And uh, I love the way you explain them as well. Uh, um, yeah. I don't know what to say now. <laughs> That's a first. Um, <laughs> um, but you didn't quite answer my question, though. You you gave me a general no. answer in terms of your yes. your 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 spiritual, um, uh, you know, alignment. But you know, mm. is that classified in any sense? I guess you've just said that oh, it isn't. Okay, so it isn't really. There's no real classification say... in terms of that methodology. I mean, for me, everything that I, I guess, to be honest, I would class myself as a witch, actually. And, but I don't, I follow my own path. I don't follow a, any traditional path. And everything I do, as I've always done with anything in life, is pick information, practices that I like and translate them into something that I like or want to do but also within that I have to say that there's certain um there's certain sects that I lean towards more um you know like I'm really into comatics or you know like ancient Egypt um but let's not use the word Egypt because that is a colonized name and Basically, a lot of African traditional religions are really interesting to me. But the thing is there, there are some paths that I know my, I know loosely that my ancestry lies in. But I haven't, you know, I'm still on the journey to discovering that. But also in the same breath, I must say that I have no desire to become part of any organized path at all whether that be an African traditional, whether that is whatever the hell it is. I don't really care about that kind of stuff because I truly don't believe that that's 
that's not for me. Anything that's organized, I, you know, really rebel from. So for me, like, I would call myself, first of all, like, you know, in touch with the universe, in conversation, in commune, 24-7, and as much as possible. But a lot of the work I do is actually through, um, through my ancestors and talking to them, getting their advice, um, and them letting me know what I should be doing. Because um, cause that's kind of the easiest way, I have to say. Because they, you know, they know what's up. They know what's good for you. And they're always looking out for you. So ancestor veneration is definitely a big part of my practice. But yes, I would call it most definitely a practice. And it's constantly an evolution. Mm. And it also feels like is uh, maybe indirectly or even directly informing some of your practices at Cogdis uh, in mm. terms of improvement, betterment, learning. And I love your point of, you know, learning from the teacher and the teacher learning from the um, student uh, in terms of mm. that collaborative, you know, two-way relationship. Mm. Um, Claire, this has been wonderful uh informative entertaining um <laughs> spiritual um do, <laughs> <Always>. <laughs> i'm taking you off on that tarot reading by the way um yes the two final questions um yeah first is any uh, you know bit of advice uh you know, a, a learning a lesson one of one of your experiences along your uh you know your journey that you would be you know, you reference, you, you know, you'd be willing to share. Mm, okay. So I think my biggest piece of advice um, in life is about focusing on yourself. I know there's obviously, there's been a lot of talk of self-care and self-preservation and all of that stuff. Um, but everything begins with you. Because if it comes to career, love, all of that stuff, you know, you can work things out on the way, but the main driver is who you are. What's your purpose in life? You don't have to have a final goal. It's just like, how do you want to move through the world? Do you also, you know, it can be simple things. Who do you want to hang out with? What temperature do you want to live in? But actually think about yourself. I think a lot of our... Um, a lot of our world and our systems are about shoulds and what we should do in the world, what we should do for society, what we should do for others. And, you know, you know, stuff like career. Who the hell cares about career? So boring. Like there's 10,000 other things to think about and they all start with you. And actually, who are you? What do you even like? Not what are you good at? Who cares what you're good at? What do you enjoy? What makes you feel alive? What do you hate? You know, like all things like that. It's really just like the first step to anything. And I wish I'd done this before I thought about hanger, you know, because I immediately, you know, I just automatically did it. This is what I should be doing. Should again. But really, like, why was I doing that? What did I want from it? You know, what did I want in the world? Like, if I just wanted to have fun, then I. And I recognize that I would have had way more fun with it, you know? Like there's, yeah, I, I know that's really vague, but it's really like that's the crux of anything, really. How do you want to swim in the stream? Then you know how to swim in it. Know thyself. 
Um, hundred percent. And last question: Who would you want to hear from on the show? Ooh. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot recently, and I really want to listen to a lot more psychologists. Okay, any particular ones? Um, no, not in particular. Like, I just want to basically hear from people that are, because I feel like a lot of what we have right now is, okay, we've got these problems, let's think about solutions. But a lot of the solutions lie flat because we actually don't understand the human mind. <clears throat> And actually how these, inter I think a lot of what we have is assumptions on how things work. And actually that's why they don't work. So what I, I personally am really wanting to look into and people that I want to hear from are actually, you know, how does our mind work on a psychological, biological scale? And how can we work with that, you know, with the human body as a natural element? How can we actually work with that in a, in a way that is expansive and um, and exciting, because at the moment we've got, you know, so many new ideas, potential solutions, and things coming out. But if people, if they're, you know, people can't digest them or they're not being interacted with in the most expansive sense, then it kind of, you know, it's not taking the fullest advantage of this opportunity we have in this moment of abject chaos. We have such great opportunity to really readjust. And I feel like a big field that I haven't really delved into is psychology on how actually this can be implemented the most successful way, right? How can we envision the new future and actually get there in a way that's possible with the human mind. I've been reading a lot of books. You know, I've read this book recently called The Power of the Sub Subconscious Mind. And I'm like, the hell? Why is this not taught in school? It's out Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you quickly. It's basically... Okay, so the mind is in two parts. Subconscious mind is like the all-powerful but blind being can't see anything of our reality that we see through our eyes but everything you tell them they believe and they make happen you know they have no sense of humor nuance nothing our conscious mind is us our personality mind that we see in the world and our ego mind so everything that we tell the subconscious mind is what our subconscious mind creates for us in the world and this is basically the basis of manifestation right so if you tell your subconscious mind something your subconscious mind is like sweet i've created it and, you know, if you tell it, if you lie to it, then it will create the lies that you're telling it. If you say, oh, God, I'm going to try so hard today, but I'm really scared. Subconscious mind is like, sweet, okay, I know what's going on today. Tired, but scared. Gotcha. And, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, this should be common knowledge. How can nobody tell us this very simple mechanics of the mind? Why am I only learning about this now when I'm 30? It's ridiculous. <laughs> so I think that, you know, this, this kind of information... Um, is essential for our growth as human beings. And so, yeah, I don't know if that's too vague, but this is the kind of information that I think I'd like to hear from. Great. I recommend you have a listen to Jodie Karras, who I spoke yes. to uh, a couple of months ago from Self Space. Um, yes. An excellent practitioner in exactly what you've just uh, spoken about. So, no, and I, f I fully agree. Um, they you coming back to sustainability and language mm. uh, and, and accessibility. It's it, it 
it doesn't help um, when it's explained yeah. as you just have again very eloquently. Uh, you know, it's like, of course, why, why wouldn't I know that or do that or you know right. think like that? Um, so yeah, I've fully subscribed to that uh, you know approach of you know difficult things explained in simple mm. simple ways. And it's like, yes, duh, yeah, let's go. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, this has been wonderful. Um, thanks for your time. Um, yes. If anybody does want to get hold of you, what's the uh, what's the best way? Um, for anything, you know, fashion ethics related, I'd say Claire at Cogdis, C-O-G-D-I-S dot studio, um, or on our website, Cogdis dot studio. And um, yeah, for spiritual stuff, you're going to have to email me at Yuri, Y-U-R-I at The High Priestex. It's Priestex spelt with an X. Dot com. Um, yeah, and I'm starting a new thing with that next year, but, you know, people can hear about that later. There's we'll, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> we'll come back for that chat. Um, yeah. Thanks so much, Claire. Really good to chat. You're um, welcome. And, yeah, wish you every success in your, uh, in your future endeavours. Thank you very much. You too, Will.